So last time um, we ended up talking about inspiration and, um, and talking about the variance a little bit. Um, any lingering questions on the variance or the, uh, the inspiration of scripture? Yeah, yeah, the, the variance um, for scripture are like, most of the time it's just wording. Um, sometimes it's spelling. Um, and it's only a rare occasion where it's like a section of scripture, like in John chapter eight, or at the very end of the gospel of Mark, where we're like, this has ancient testimony from all over the Mediterranean. Um, but it is, does it actually belong right here or was it, uh, was it from somewhere else that kind of got interposed here? Um, but for the most part, it's like, um, Jesus, the Christ or, or the variant might be Christ Jesus, the Lord or something like that. Yes, Kathy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, you know, on page 28 there, where it talks about transmitting the intent of the divine author behind the text. Um, and for the most part, like there, you, you could make a Bible translation that would be like 26 volumes long if you wanted to um, try to include all the, the notes about, you know, the context and what the words mean. Um, but for the most part, you, you've got a, a decent translation, then you don't have to worry about it. Um, and there are a lot of very good translations um, on the market even today. All right, so then that gets us into fundamental and non-fundamental doctrines, which is the backside of um, lesson two. And we talked about this um, in, your, in your textbook. There are three key elements of a fundamental doctrine. Um, and I kind of have them on the screen for us as well. Um, but we also have to discuss, you know, what do we mean by fundamental and, uh, and non-fundamental? <laughs> because there's also, um, this term isn't always used in the exact same way. Um, you know, especially coming out of like the, the 1970s and shortly after the, the Billy Graham era, um, you've got this, this term of a Christian fundamentalist. And that that is thrown around or tossed um so i guess first part what do we mean when we're talking about fundamental doctrines and the the three elements that we have up here on the board um talks that it shares the message of salvation um, shows us how to live lives of thanksgiving and it brings god glory i don't know if that's as helpful as as they maybe had thought <laughs> so what do we mean by fundamental fundamental or non-fundamental doctrines. I think the, the major thing here is um, if, you, if you were to think to yourself, you know, you've got, you've got six minutes to talk with somebody who, um, before, you know, as, as near as you can tell, from a human perspective before they, before they pass away. And they say, dear friend, you're a Christian. Tell me what I need to know. Um, you wouldn't start by talking about um, the angels or the, you know, the devil's rebellion against the Lord. You wouldn't start by, you'd probably start by talking about um, the reality of sin 
and you start by talking about um, God's promise of a savior, you know, basic law and gospel. Um, you talk about the fact that this Jesus has, has paid for the sins of all people and that he is serious about, um, about creating faith through that word. And, um, and that because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, that um, his proclamation of forgiveness applies to any, any, any person. Um, I think that's, that's basically what we mean when we talk about fundamental doctrines. Like if you had a very concise period of time to, to talk with somebody, what would you, what would you summarize scripture as the essentials? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And so like, uh, about the best summary that we have for, um, you know, fundamental doctrine is probably the apostles creed, um, because everything that we have there, um, that if you're not worshiping, talking about worshiping the one triune, the triune God, then you're not worshiping the true God. Um, and you need to talk about the personal work of Jesus Christ, which culminates in the resurrection of the dead, um, in his resurrection and the eventual resurrection of all flesh, um, and then the third article talks about how do we, how does God bring us to faith? Um, and in that sense, um, I think we, we add in like this, this other category that isn't fundamental, it's not non-fundamental, like a secondary fundamental doctrine. <laughs> and I think one of our professors made this term up when he wrote his book, his, his dog, dogmatics book. Um, but like the secondary fundamental doctrine would be like the, the sacraments. Um, holy baptism and holy communion, where they they aren't essential for for faith. Like you can you can convey the gospel truth by by speaking, um, or even you can convey that gospel truth by baptizing somebody. Um, but it might take a little bit of time before you you know go back and teach about baptism. Um, and I don't know if that's helpful or not. The the non fundamental doctrines. Um, doesn't mean that we, we don't care about it, you know, whether it's, whether it's fellowship or whether, you know, you name it prayer. Um, we definitely care about those things. They are not non-essential, um, but they, they just don't, don't, aren't the, the same deserving of our, our time and attention, especially if we have a compressed timeline with somebody and where this different differs from like Christian fundamentalism or being a Christian fundamentalist. Um, they say that basically there's, there's an eight step process to become a Christian and that's all that matters. And it ends up, you know, you, if you believe with your heart and then you confess with the Lord, and then you have like the baptism by the spirit, and then you have the, the water baptism, and then, um, you do your life of good works or whatever it is. Um, though that would be kind of a Christian fundamentalist approach. And, and even to us, because <laughs> we aren't Christian fundamentalists, and the term has a lot of baggage to it, um, because it has the, the connotation of people who are out picketing uh, on a lot of, you know, hot button political topics, as well as religious topics. And um, I think the, the term doesn't really communicate what we, what we are. Um, so with that, let's see, the analogy, page 38, the analogy of a car, that's the, that's the only full paragraph on page 38. 
Uh, we might make the analogy of driving a car. There are some things that one must know in order to drive an automobile. <laughs> one must know how to turn on the ignition, how to use the accelerator and the brake pedals, how to steer. Ignorance of the need for fuel or the need to check the radiator and oil levels might not keep one from driving the car. You know, just, just ask you know, your 16-year-old self when you first started driving. <laughs> um, but eventually, ignorance of these things will hinder or perhaps altogether prevent effective use of the automobile. That was um, one of my friends who is a pastor now and, and uh, will forever remain nameless. Um, but he was, at, he was at work and he worked at the same place as another friend. And he's like, I don't know, my car is making weird noise. And, it's, and uh, they go out there, it's not starting. And so the second friend opens the hood and checks the oil and says, when was the last time you changed your oil? <laughs> <laughs> and the first friend is like, I have to do what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not essential until it is. <laughs> um, so fundamental and non-fundamental doctrine. Um, what, we need, what we mean is, you know, all these things matter, just that some of them matter a little bit more, especially when somebody is new to the faith. Um, let's see. Anything else? Um, we talked about um, the promise fulfillment and then the miracle of inspiration and that would that would kind of finish out the rest of chapter two yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, and and uh, you could probably think of a few other few other passages that would also apply. Um, but it is it is a little interesting that when we think about the, the things that Christians celebrate or hold dear, um, that there is almost like a demonic alternative or reverse of that. So you've got you know Christians baptize their babies. Um, or, you know, Lutheran Christians baptize their babies. And the, the alternative secular sacrament is abortion. Um, that Christians get married in a church. And the alternative secular version is either ignoring it completely or um, making, you know, a marriage that doesn't align with God's blueprint into the law of the land. Um, we think of, you know, the simple regular promise of, of the rainbow, um, and it is a beautiful promise that it's been you know, co-opted by, by a group that <laughs> wants to deny that God is going to judge sin. And that's kind of the sad part. Um, any, other, any other promises um, of scripture that might not exactly pertain directly to Jesus and or salvation, but promises that are comforting or remarkable? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's a very comforting promise that, um, that we don't have to worry about flooding. Um, and that just as God brought judgment and then that time, God will bring judgment again. And that final judgment is going to be with fire. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If, when, you're, when you're talking about the flood, um, like the, the three places then to look after you read it in Genesis would be first and second Peter and then Jude. And they're, they're all um, are very much parallel to each other. Um, where first Peter talks about the flood as, as an image of God um, in baptism, saving people through water. Um, second Peter talks about the flood as proof that just as the old world scoffed against God, um, the new world still does but God will keep his promises. And that's, that's basically the same way Jude writes as well. Jude and second Peter are very, very similar in that regard. I think, um, as far as other promises, um, and I visited a, a man in the, the hospital who, you know, I shared one of my favorite Psalms, um, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Um, and, and even though it's not, you know, specifically in, in all of its parts talking about the forgiveness of sins, it is talking about God's attention, um, to, to Christians in all circumstances, um, or another, another favorite, um, Psalm 139, how God designed our bodies. Um, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, that Psalm and, and that's especially helpful also in, you know, when somebody has surgery or similar, that just as the God who designed your body, um, yes, he used, you know, your parents and your mother to knit you together. And now he's going to use these, these doctors to re-knit you together. Um, or um, you think of the end of Romans chapter eight, and he's, Paul isn't specifically talking about uh, the forgiveness of sins, but he is saying all these bad things can and will happen, but um, what of it? <laughs> because none of them will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Anything else? All right. That means chapter three. The attributes of the Bible. At the very bottom, it says, Lessons 03, Grace Abounds, the Attributes of the Bible. All right, the attributes of the Bible. Um, what are some of them, either from your page or from your own recollection? All right, inerrant, which means without error. Um, and this was a, a fairly substantial portion um, where he's, we've, we've talked about it and, and thus far in, in the book, um, where from page 19 all the way through 43, which is the beginning of chapter three, we've talked about the composition, uh, the divine origin of the Bible, the divine purpose of the Bible, the doctrinal nature of the Bible, meaning it has a, a serious teaching purpose. Um, and then the reasons for receiving the Bible is God's word. And it's like, well, we've talked about a lot of the attributes of the Bible. Um, and that first one, um, inerrant, 
I've got a got a friend who occasionally still comes to worship here. Um, nice guy, and he's he's like a night janitor at, at Walmart. And he says, "Well, pastor, I <laughs> inerrant isn't a strong enough word because it implies that um, that there's an external thing that could be." I don't know. It's kind of a different way of, of saying it, and I can't even replicate it right now. But I, he, what he wanted to say was that the Bible is pure or perfect, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but inerrant meaning without error, um, and we've got some of that, you know, with true. Okay, um, some of that from like Second Timothy three. All Scripture is God breathed. We'll look at that Numbers chapter twenty three verses nineteen and twenty. Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. So you're thinking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. This is the, uh, <laughs> the second oracle or the second message from Balaam. So the Israelites are moving through the land. Um, they're, they're heading south. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They just conquered um, the Amorites up um, to the east of Galilee. Now they're heading south and they run into Moab. And the king of Moab is named Balak. And he says, you know, I, I need somebody to curse these people. He summons Balaam, um, whose, whose donkey doesn't want to go. And Balaam talked with his donkey. Um, but then eventually Balaam does go. Uh, verses 19 and 20. Do we have a volunteer for that? Go ahead. Excellent. Um, so here's here's Balaam. He's an he's an unbeliever, although he is very aware of the the one true God. Um, God spoke to him on more than one occasion. And, and here he's verifying exactly, exactly what God has already said in scripture. Uh, what do we see about, um, about the word of God in these verses? There's actually a couple of attributes of God that he, and attributes of the Bible that he refers to in verses 19 and 20. What is one? All right, God doesn't lie. Nor does he change. Um, that, that God is forever changeless. Um, and then you keep the, the rest of verse 19, that God is, the last two lines there, that God is serious about doing what he says. Does he speak and then not carry it out? Well, no. <laughs> um, and, and then verse 20, um, that he has blessed, and I cannot change that, um, that, that God is greater and stronger than we, and that God, when God speaks, he is serious about fulfilling exactly what he said he would do. Um, so there's a few things that, that Balaam highlights for us. You know, the, the running joke about Balaam and the donkey. <laughs> Usually when, um, you know, you're at seminary and learning how to preach, 
and it's always terrible. <laughs> it is. It, you know, we, we all had to sit down and listen to each other preach and, um, and then evaluate and critique each other. And, and somebody get, gets done and they're like, oh, that was, that was just terrible. And, and, it, and it was. And then uh, somebody else pipes up, well, you know, God spoke through a donkey once. He can do it again. <laughs> yeah. A very loving bunch that we've got. Um, how about that agree or disagree uh, on, your, on your sheet there? There are three options, agree or disagree, for each of these. The Bible contains the word of God. The Bible does not have to be correct in historical and scientific matters and can still be verbally inspired as long as it's correct when it speaks about God. Or And every word of the Bible is true because the Bible is inspired by God. Yeah, and that the Bible doesn't merely doesn't only contain the Word of God, but it uh, it is the Word of God, um, and that that's kind of the the interesting part about living in Ohio is um, some of these some of these heresies um, kind of came from Ohio, <laughs> or some of these these um, very <laughs> yeah very imprecise ways of talking, as well as some of the the earliest megachurches. Um, well, the, the megachurches of the middle to late 20th century also came from Ohio. Um, so, I mean, it's a really fascinating place to, to live. Um, but, you know, the, I, I'm serious. I'm serious. It's not like the godless Northeast. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm looking forward to pastor's conference next week. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> that that's like the trick question that uh that you usually catch one of the sixth or seventh graders with does the bible contain the word of god oh definitely pastor hagan well yes but how about let's try this one does is the bible the word of god and what's the difference between those two um and then that next one bible doesn't have to be correct in historical and scientific matters um, even talking about uh, creation or the aftermath of the flood. Yes or no? Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's a really good point, too, um, that for all the distressing things about COVID, and that was what I, I told our council when we, you know, almost three years ago, decided to stop services for a while, was, you know, we need to pay special attention to our new confirmants, you know, like, Um, These people who are just coming out of, you know, being new to the faith and getting, laying the habit of coming to church regularly. And, and even despite that, you know, it, it, we weren't especially successful in retaining a lot of those. Um, So there's definitely the downside, but then you see the upside that even (laughs) that we know by nature now that a zoom call with grandma isn't the same as sitting at her table. And we know by nature now that that we need um, we need the sort of fellowship that that you can't get from a screen, um, and and also you know the the final boot to some of these churches to say well it is now twenty years into the new millennium and we should find a way to um, make use of the technology that we have that you know if you have you know like one our, one of our pastors down in um, North Carolina. He just 
you know, they've been doing this for a while. He bought a couple of old iPhone sixes off of eBay and just because it had an HD camera. And then he just used those with a little bit of software. And he's been, you know, streaming for a number of years now. And he's like, this, this really isn't that hard if you can figure it out. Um, but it, yeah, so it's, I mean, there's a lot of challenges, but there are some, a lot of potential for, for blessing too. Anything else? Um, yeah. What is needed to change such apathy? <laughs> yeah. Bottom line. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, I don't want to have like the same answer be the answer for everything, but it really is the answer for everything. <laughs> Um, I don't, um, I think we, for most of this, I, I kind of skipped over the, the good Samaritan and the sermon on the Mount, um, and all the way up to Isaiah 28, unless we, you know, look at, looking at those, your takeaway from the story of the good Samaritan. Yeah, that the whole, the whole story of the good Samaritan, um, this guy is wondering, well, okay, who are the neighbors? Who do I have to be a neighbor to? And Jesus said, it isn't a question of what's the, the small list. So the question is, how can I live as a neighbor or serve as a neighbor to somebody else? Um, he definitely turns that around. Yeah. 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 That a lot of times Jesus's most um, convicting words are for those who really should, should know better whether it's the, the Levite and the priest who pass by, like they, they're teaching at the temple of all places. They're not, you know, um, relegated to the backwater of Galilee and being a teacher up there. Um, or, you know, we get to Matthew, what, Matthew 23, 24, and Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees who, who love all the, the adulation from the people, um, but then they load everybody down with more, with more weight that they themselves weren't able to carry out. <laughs> um, that Jesus demonstrates that in, in even his own teaching, that those who have been given much from, from them, much is also expected. Anything else um, from the Sermon on the Mount or that this part from Isaiah chapter 28? I think that that part from Isaiah chapter 28, um, if you can turn there in your Bible, it's at least helpful to, to see kind of the context. So if you open up to the center of your Bible, that'll drop you into the book of Psalms and then you keep going, you're into Proverbs and then you'll run into Isaiah chapter 28. So if you go back to um, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, um, that's, where, that's where God says that he wants to do something new. Um, he says, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am laying a stone in Zion as a foundation, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone to provide a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. And then you keep going. Um, all these beautiful gospel promises all the way through verse 19. And then beginning in verse, ver the end of verse 19 and verse 20, verse 20 is, um, 
is kind of one image of hell. <laughs> one of the ways that, that hell is kind of described here in the, the book of Isaiah is uh, verse 20, that the bed is too short to lie on and the blanket is too narrow to cover you for the Lord will rise up as he did on Mount Perizim. Like if you've ever been camping and, um, and you go in like August, you're like, Hey, it's 80 degrees out. And then, and then nighttime hits and it's like 45 degrees and you're in a, you're in a tent. And it's like, ah, oh, I just can't get warm. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the image that he has here. Um, but the point that he's, that he's driving toward in verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as he did on, on Mount Perizim. He will be enraged as he was in the Valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and to accomplish his task, his foreign task. Um, that strange work and that, that foreign task um, is really talk, God talking about his judgment. Um, both a proclamation of the law and then following through on the threats of the law. That that is, that is God's foreign work, is the way he describes it, before he can do his proper work, what he wants to do, of declaring you know, forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and loving God. Um, and I think that's, that's the, I guess, the last part about um, talking about God's word as being efficacious, um, that it's efficacious throughout, but it's efficacious both in law and gospel, um, that, that God's, that God's proclamation of the gospel is always has an effect. Um, I guess, you know, for example, then when it comes to preaching, um, this is, this is one of the things that is a little bit difficult to kind of wrap your head around, um, at least for me, cause I, <laughs> I'm usually the one who has to get up and talk on Sundays, um, is that every time you share God's law, even when that law is shared as a guide for thankful Christian living, like we already heard about your forgiveness and we want to say, how can I serve God with my life? Well, um, love those around you and serve them with love and good works, whatever the case may be. Anytime we have a statement of law, even if we're intending it as only the third use of the law, the first and second use are still in view because it's just the law. You can't say, well, this is only third use of the law. You're saying you're, you're sharing a little bit of God's law and it will still be the mirror that, that convicts me of my sin and makes me feel, oh yeah, I, I haven't done that. Um, or the curb that says I should watch out so that I you know, don't do what's wrong. Um, even if we only intend it as that, that third use of the law, as a, as a guide for how we ought to live. Anything else? Um, let's see, Romans 3, we, we talked a little bit about um, both God's law and gospel being efficacious. Um, after that, any, any examples of God's law being efficacious? Uh -huh. All right. So the rich man trusted his riches and, um, and he ignored God's law and he felt the effects of that law after he had, after his unbelief, um, or you think of, of Jonah who's walking around Nineveh 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. We don't have anything else from, from Jonah's sermon, except for that, that statement. Um, and it was efficacious in that the, the people repented and said, you know, let's have a fast and perhaps God will relent from sending this calamity. I think when we talk about um, God's law being efficacious, it, there's a couple of things that are also involved with that. 
Um, it may result in repentance or at least contrition, um, as we see with Jonah preaching God's law. Um, it may result in a, in, a, in a hardened heart. If you're still in Isaiah, let's go back to um, Isaiah 6. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 6. And, um, and you probably remember this one um, from a time or two. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a throne high and exalted. His train of the robe filled the temple. The seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. And then the angel takes the coal with tongs and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And then God's like, who's going to go for us? Isaiah's like, here am I, send me, send me. And that's normally where it ends. Um, but then beginning in verse nine, you know, and, and that's even like the, the beautiful hymn that was hymn number 573 in, um, in the red hymnal, uh, hark the voice of Jesus crying. It's like, oh, perfect. Awesome. Cool. Um, verse nine, he said, go, you are to tell these people, keep listening, but you will never understand. Keep looking, but you will never get it. Make the heart of the people callous, make their ears deaf and blind their eyes so that they do not see with their eyes or hear with their ears or understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And how long? Until the cities are a wasteland and the houses are totally deserted. Um, that was God's way of telling Isaiah that Isaiah would have to preach and have everybody reject his preaching and that the people would be made more accountable and their heart, they would harden their hearts even more in rejecting his word, that the purpose of Isaiah's ministry was to, was to bring that, that, final, that final proclamation of God's word and to ready the people for the judgment. Um, yeah, that's, that's the part that they left out of the hymn. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I would not disagree. Um, although I think at the same time, you know, it, it would be, there is a lot more opportunity to speak, um, speak gladly or winsomely about, about the blessings that, that we have in the word of God. Um, because there are a lot more people who have no actual con contact or understanding with what God's word actually says. Kind of like the, uh, the perhaps apocryphal quote from, from Gandhi. Well, Jesus, I like, but, but who are you? Because you don't sound like the Jesus that I read about. Gandhi wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but anything else? God's law being efficacious. What about um, God's gospel being efficacious? Any other examples that come to mind? No, no. Yeah, specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, the day of Pentecost. Um, and there's Peter who, who preaches both law and gospel in his sermon. Um, and when they hear it, they're cut to the heart, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter follows up with the gospel solution. Um, or maybe you think of John chapter four, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, and she's like, ah, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, well, you're right. <laughs> but there's more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the demon possessed man. And then when Jesus came back to that area, 
um, at first when Jesus healed the demon possessed man, the, the townspeople are like, get out of here. And Jesus says, go tell your family what, what God has done for you. Then when Jesus returned, everybody comes and welcomes him. <laughs> yeah. So then when, when we talk about, um, especially at least God's law being efficacious, we're talking about the effect within the human heart, either um, with the result of contrition and, or even repentance. Uh, so contrition is just sorrow for sin, like sorry you got caught, like um, the politician who has to make some sort of public apology, he might feign contrition. Um, Whereas repentance is that contrition that is that leads to or results in um, faith in Jesus for forgiveness. Um, so when we talk about God's law being efficacious, it could, could be just the sorrow over sin, um, could be the sorrow that leads to godly repentance. Um, it could be that somebody is more firm in their rejection of that word. It could be that God's law is efficacious in that he follows through with the threats of his law and brings judgment, um, such as, you know, when um, Genesis chapter 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah, that God goes down there and there wasn't a specific preaching of the law, um, I guess, but it was definitely God following through after getting some on the ground insight from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and then the result of God's law, um, if you look at Romans chapter three, like the whole purpose of God's law is to that every mouth may be silenced, that, that whatever excuse somebody may have, they will run out of excuses and God's law will never run out of its power. Um, and so the way that, that hell is often described as um, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth it's, um, it's anger against God. It's division among people. It's, you know, it's blaming each other, um, but it's also having no way out. That is the, the final, the ultimate way in which God's law is um, efficacious. Cool. Anything else? Next time we will pick up at uh, the bottom of lesson three, page one where we talk about Professor Deutschlander describing the efficacious work of God's word as supernatural. And then the agree or disagree. So we will close with prayer. And we'll pray. Uh, dear Jesus, thank you for um, the promises which you have spoken about concerning your word, um, both that it is completely trustworthy and without error, and also that this word is something through which you are serious about accomplishing your primary goal of bringing people to faith, that they may be saved forever. We ask you to continue to hold up this promise of your efficacious word, that your word may be used to bless your church both here and around the world, to the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.